0: United, we can and will overcome. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. This American carnage
1: stops right here and stops right now. Since you last heard from us, the presidency of the United States has very clearly been won by Joe Biden, who will be the 46th president. So this week, Chloe and I discussed how that victory will play out and how the institutions of American democracy have responded to the current president, claiming that he, in fact, won the presidency, when he clearly didn't. We talked about whether Fox News has finally seen the light, what senior Republicans are doing, and whether this is, in fact, an attempted coup. We also asked the question of whether a fascist needs to be successful in order to be called a fascist. We cover what's happening in Georgia and the Senate runoff elections that will happen there in January. We talk about what's happening internally in the Democrats and how people are grappling with questions like whether Joe Biden won this election or whether Donald Trump lost. Chloe, I wanted to go back to our conversation earlier before the election, in, the, in that sort of different world before the election. Um, we had a conversation about contingency and agency. And I think, we had always said that that everything would kind of depend not so much on how trump behaved because we knew what he was going to do you know he told us weeks before the election that he was going to refuse to concede that he didn't want to lose that he couldn't guarantee a peaceful transition of power blah 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 so he he, he told us what he was going to do and so we had said that what mattered what was going to matter was how the people and the institutions around him responded to that behavior so we were looking at those kind of bigger systems i suppose and how how strong they were how, how robust they are and then of course what happened is trump did claim victory early big surprise um and still claiming victory at the time of recording yes very much so um and the media response, I think, seems to have been prepared for that. Emphasis, I think, on seems. But they the media response, the media coverage, doing things like cutting away from Trump when he's starting to talk about election fraud, does seem to take in, have taken the wind out of what he's trying to do a little bit. So, you know, I, I've kind of... I've been hesitant to say this because I'm kind of reluctant to make any big conclusions about anything just yet, because I think it's too early, but it does seem like we have seen a recognition on the, on the part of, I guess the kind of mainstream media in, in the U S of the very real and, and quite existential threat that Trump and Trumpism pose to American democracy.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think that one thing to say is one, it's a very belated recognition. So, you know, it's a very new thing for news networks to cut away from Trump when he's speaking and when he's airing absolute untruths and conspiracy theories. They've indulged him at every turn until election day. And, you know, I think while I'm very grateful for this, it is an absolute indictment on society and on the way that American democracy works that one of the key events in this election was the was that it, that it appears that Rupert Murdoch has withdrawn his personal support for Trump. And that that seems, to to my mind, in this very early stage and with all the usual caveats, that seems to me to be one of the decisive moments in taking the wind out of Trump's sails.
1: Yeah, and I think that is really – I think you're right, of course. I think you're right. But it's also really interesting to, to have seen not just the way that Fox News in particular, Rupert Murdoch's Fox News in particular, has responded to Trump and what he's trying to do, but also how the rest of the media has responded to Fox's response to Trump. Like, we're just so far down the rabbit hole. But I think, you know, it, I was really, really struck by how quickly media takes pivoted to isn't Fox doing – well, you know, isn't Fox surprising all of us by doing things like being the first network to call Arizona for Joe Biden, for example? Um, and I think you know that that may be true. Like that, that may be Fox kind of belated, very belatedly, as you say, Chloe, kind of realizing what is at stake. I don't so much think that's what's happening so much as self-preservation or recognizing where power is, is shifting to but but what that seemed to do to me at least I don't know about you Chloe but in in that kind of coverage that Fox doing like a few very basic small things right very quickly shifted the narrative to um, I guess, giving the benefit of the doubt, not just to Fox, but to senior Republicans and, and kind of saying, oh, look, you know, Republicans are finally standing up to Trump there. They're finally recognising the threat he poses. A- and I'm really sceptical of that.
0: I am. I'm really sceptical of that too. And hopefully at some point this isn't going to be a conversation where we're just agreeing with each other. But the reason why... I'm skeptical about that is because I think it's you know some of the most illuminating work that I've seen recently about the Trump presidency has been suggesting not that the Republicans are puppets of Trump but that Trump is Trump is a creature of the Republican Party of Mitch McConnell in particular and there is a degree to which you know especially if The Republicans retain the Senate, which does look like a distinct possibility. I'm sure we're going to speak about the Georgia runoffs in a a minute. They don't need Trump. They got what they wanted from Trump. Specifically, they got the Supreme Court. They also do have potentially a very dominant position over the political agenda for the next four years.
1: Uh, Totally. And that's why, you know, when you see mainstream media covering someone like Mitt Romney and being like, isn't it great that Mitt Romney is standing up to the president? Like literally no one on either side cares what Mitt Romney has to say. Mitt Romney has no power. And I think that's kind of where that analysis falls down as well, because it's not its not looking at those power structures, Chloe, just as you were kind of saying. It's not really looking properly at what people like Mitch McConnell are doing, but also what people in positions of power within the Trump administration are doing. So Mike Pompeo, for example, who's the Secretary of State, the, the Foreign Minister – was asked in a press conference, you know, will there be a peaceful transition of power? And he responded, yes, there will be a peaceful transition of power to the second Trump administration.
0: Look, and that and that came across to me. And, you know, the so the movements, especially in the Department of Defence and the Pentagon, so there seemed to be a rash of Trump appointees who are coming in now at this very late stage in the game. So to me, it looks like kind of a a rubbish coup like a laughably dumb coup that isn't going to work and i don't think it's going to work what do you think is
1: is this a coup i certainly think it's an attempted coup and I, and i agree that it is it it's a rubbish one like it it's not going that well but i think even if even if it doesn't work as you say chloe and the indications are that it's not going to work that that doesn't mean we should assume that's because Institutions of American democracy are strong, and and it's because the institutions have resisted an attempted coup. I think some of the reason it, it we think uh, you know it's not going to work is just that kind of rank incompetence. Like it's the kind of it's the fact that the the lawyer fronting this campaign is Rudy Giuliani, and he is completely unhinged. Um, I think some of it's also just contingent again you know if the results were closer in some of those states like michigan wisconsin pennsylvania then i think that that court play that attempt to undermine democracy through those legal means i think that probably would have worked you know i don't think the legal system is up for that kind of challenge and i think it's also really important to to remember that you know you know, despite all of that, despite that kind of ranking competence and that contingency, Trump is still doubling down and Republicans in positions of power like Mike Pompeo throughout the administration are falling into line behind him. And and it can be for small things. It can be like this, you know, kind of relatively low level official who's refusing to sign the letter that releases funds to Joe Biden so that he can properly begin the transition. Right. So so these kind of small things that are chipping away, they still matter. And, and if we kind of combine that, we combine that administrative, um, sorry, that administrative stymieing with those Republicans in power like Pompeo and Fox News, which is still dominated, you know, despite what the news desk is doing, it's still dominated by Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity, who are falling in line behind Trump and who have way more influence than the news desk.
0: Yeah. And I, I think that there's, um, you know, I keep thinking about the stories that we're going to tell. About the Trump years and the 2020 election. And I think that for all I am still laughing out loud at Four Seasons Total Landscaping, I, I think that if, you know, what, what I think is going to happen is we're going to have these very clumsy attempts to frustrate or to reposition, to maintain, retain as much power for Trump and his surrogates as is possible over the next two months. And I think they're going to get frustrated. I think they're not going to work. I think they're going to be hilarious and comical. But I think if we're going to tell the story of Trump's leaving the Oval Office as a comedy, we also need to keep in mind that there is an element of real threat to it and that that was real. Even as as it collapses into hilarity, the threat was real and there was good reason to be scared as we were.
1: Yeah, totally, and and you know, I to be perfectly honest, I am I am still scared. Like I don't I don't think we can be complacent yet. We can still, of course, find Four Seasons Total Landscaping completely hilarious. But you know, those two, as you say, Chloe, those two things can exist at the same time, and that that kind of leads me to a question that I've I've been wanting to ask you because, of course. You know, the hot takes are, are, are sort of rolling in fast. And one of the ongoing conversations that we've had about Trump for, you know, four, four or five years now is about whether we can call Trump a fascist or whether we can call Trump Trumpism fascism. And and there has been a, a fair bit, I would say, of kind of triumphalism because, uh, you know, by all appearances, this attempted coup has not worked and so there are a lot of people kind of saying see we told you it wasn't fascism like you were just fear or it was something else blah 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 I, I'm interested Chloe to, I guess it kind of links to that conversation about you know the, is this an a- attempted coup can, can you still call it an attempt if it doesn't work does, does Trump actually have to be successful in order to be called a fascist
0: I short answer no um I don't I don't think that success is a Success is not, or otherwise, is not a quality about fascism. Fascism is about the attitudes that fascism embodies. It's about the forms of repression and the forms of the state that it embraces. It's, and that's where there is, you know, genuine territory for debate about what actually counts as a fascist. As a fascist. But success or otherwise, I don't think that has anything to do with it. And I, I, I've noticed the same trend that you're talking about there, where. It's funny how a lot of people who were very quick to call Trump a fascist or and or an existential threat to democracy are now turning around and saying everything's fine. We've, you know, we've got we've had a restoration of order thanks to the incoming Joe Biden presidency. And what I'm saying is that this is these sort of reversions to Sort of everything's fine outlook, they're coming from the people who I think always had quite a weak conceptualization of fascism. They always saw it as something that belongs to individuals, so it belongs to aberrant bad actors, to, you know, Hitler and his ridiculous moustache they weren't ever that interested in the systems that enable fascism and on the other side of that there is you know there is a school a sort of an emerging school of thought that i do have some sympathies with and that has almost dragged me away from my readiness to call trump a fascist over the past four years where they've argued that you know that calling trump a fascist without drawing attention to these these systems it's a way of deflecting attention from their problems so it's a way of you know exculpating liberals who are you know liberals and centrists who are as responsible for the, sist- the the situation that American society finds itself in and found itself in in twenty sixteen You know the system that enabled Trump to become the president, and I think that's a fair enough argument. But to me, you know, you know, drawing the comparison between Trump and fascists, I think you know at this stage I'd probably call Trump fascism light, not to, yeah, if anything. Apart from the fact that I do see fascist qualities in Trump and his politics, the comparison between Trump and fascist regimes has always been useful to me as it's a, because it's a way of illuminating the weakness of American democracy and American institutions.
1: Yeah, and, and that, of course, is something that we've we've talked about a lot and I think been, been pretty interested in pushing back on that idea that the institutions of American democracy are kind of infallible, which is... is- where that idea kind of comes from i think
0: yeah which and you know to go back four years in 2016 when there was this you know initial debate that was raging about whether trump is a fascist or whether fascism was coming to america the obvious comparison was between america in 2016 and weimar germany and one of the responses to that was to say that you know america that tr- fascism wasn't going to triumph or even really emerge in america because america was not Weimar Germany because its democracy was old and strong and I think all the way along through over the past four years my I've been using trying to use that comparison to ask the question of whether American democracy really is that strong it's certainly old and I still don't think we have a clear answer to that question I don't know that American systems have been vindicated by the 2020 presidential election result.
1: No, I don't, I don't think they have. And I think it's letting, it's letting people and systems off too lightly to, to suggest that, that that is what this result indicates. And I actually, even to go back to that question of, you know, um, the strength of those institutions and their age, I, I saw um, one piece of analysis just this morning that said, actually, American democracy is not old. You can only call American, the United States, a democracy from about 1960 onwards, which means, in fact, it's incredibly young and, and incredibly fragile,
0: well, yeah, and I think that, you know, there's a there's a case to be made that democracies should always be young in the sense that they should always be reinventing and expanding themselves and making themselves more secure and more representative. And I think you're absolutely right to say that a true American democracy only began in the 1960s with the end of segrega- segregation and, and the Voting Rights Act. But... It also requires constant reinvention, and I think that's something that we're potentially seeing in you know in the more positive outcomes and the more positive stories that are coming out of the presidential election.
1: And I think on that, Chloe, I think what what happened last last week I've lost a bit of sense of time is it's completely meaningless. I think kind of what happened is what many people hoped would happen in that the margin, Joe Biden's winning margin was big enough and and big enough in the right places in places like pennsylvania wisconsin michigan that those kind of the legal threats in particular those attempts by the trump administration to frustrate the result became ridiculous because the margins were too big to ask for automatic recounts and things like that but but i think what that might have done and i think we are seeing signs of that already is kind of put off exactly those questions that you were talking about chloe the the questions about the the integrity and the strength of american democracy in especially in the short term and and the midterm as we look to potential runoff elections
0: so yeah which leads me to a question that i'm sure is on many people's lips um what's going to happen in georgia or what's the state of play in georgia what's going to happen and what does it mean
1: Sure. So I actually just said potential runoff elections, almost guaranteed runoff elections. So so basically what's happened in Georgia in the Senate race is that it is so close that the result is basically neck and neck. And Georgia, Georgia state election laws requires that candidates have an outright majority, so they have to have 50% or more. And if they don't do that, then the election goes to a runoff. So we're going to see an election in January in Georgia for those crucial Senate seats. And it looks like... That the Georgian Senate seats are going to decide who has control of the Senate. So the the I think the best case scenario for Democrats is that they win Georgia and they get a 50-50 split in the Senate. And that means that Kamala Harris, who's the vice president, becomes the tiebreaker vote because she's kind of the president of the Senate. So Georgia is going to be absolutely critical, I think, to the success or not of a Biden administration, of course, kind of putting aside for a moment all of that stuff we've talked about, about an attempted coup. And I think we, we are already seeing a, a focus on Georgia that is just going to get more and more extreme. And the kind of the amounts of money that are going to be poured into Georgia are just going to be eye-watering. Like we're already talking about the most expensive Senate race in the history of the universe So,
0: and that'll be at the end, at the beginning of January, right? right. So before the inauguration. Yes, yeah, about three weeks before. So, so we will have that clear picture of the composition of the Senate before Joe Biden.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, theoretically, like if it if it's that close again, then then I don't know what happens, but I think it will be, um, I don't know how to say this without swearing, like it's it's going to be an absolute mess and a fight because so much hinges on it.
0: An absolute bun fight, maybe.
1: Yeah, that's what I was. Looking yeah, for. okay.
0: <laughs> so, okay, so let's. So, what's the state of play with the two parties? What's happening in in the Democratic Party? How is how are they going to approach these runoff elections?
1: Well, I think there's there's already been a huge amount of credit and celebration heading in the direction of Stacey Abrams and her or the organisation that she founded, Fair Fight, which before the election, as we've discussed before, enrolled 800,000 people to, to vote. And so that kind of ground game, I think, is going to be crucial. And and doing things, you know, there's a focus on things like um, people who turn 18 before a certain date in December can enroll to vote in these runoff elections. So there'll be a huge focus on getting young people enrolled to vote um, and and more African-American, in role to vote because we know they've been critical already. That vote has been critical already in Georgia, but I also think part of part of what we're seeing is a a kind of internal power struggle in the Democrats about who gets to run the, the game in Georgia because so much is up for grabs, so much credibility, so much power. Um, and so there are going to be fights about what kind of campaign it has to be, what kind of voters we have to focus on, what kind of issues we have to focus on, whether, you know, they stick with that kind of progressive message, whether they tack more to the centre to try and pull votes away from from the existing Republican candidates who, you know, in a, in a appalling system of voter suppression and still getting close to 50 percent of the vote or just under it so the potential for f- kind of factional warfare i think is significant um which is which is pretty worrying i think for p- people who are invested in, in in this result but i think that there is also a lot of positivity around georgia because it, it has been seen seen as such a, re- a safe republican state you know because of, of course, all of this voter suppression, gerrymandering, etc., but it has been seen as a very safe um, Republican state, and so there's kind of that that hopefulness and positivity, I think, in the, in the Democratic campaign as well, unlike in the Republican on the Republican side.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm keeping up with the debates about the Democratic Party, but what's happening with the Republicans? I mean, my to hazard a guess, I. I think that they, so, if Trump were to go quietly, which isn't happening, and I don't think is going to happen. Like the best case scenario we have is that he's just going to alternate between um, the golf course and Twitter for the next two months. But if he were to go quietly, that kind of saps the Republicans of their momentum, and that is something that would be of benefit to the Democrats. But. If Trump keeps arcing up and if he keeps calling the results into da- into doubt, that can play into fears about the integrity of the election. That can be a rallying point for Republicans. Is that something is is that a fair assessment of what is and could happen?
1: I think so, and I think we're kind of seeing the beginnings of that already, where the two Republican Senate candidates are issuing joint statements about the integrity of the elections in Georgia, even calling for the, the Republican Secretary of State in Georgia to resign because they've not been able to guarantee fair elections in in Georgia so they are that they're you know again, those Republicans who are completely doubling down with Trump, who are falling in line and, and tying their political fortunes to him. So they will be looking to Trump to see what he does and to see how, I guess, aggressive he is in this strategy and will be seeing that as key to getting out their base again.
0: And, I mean, obviously this has, the, this has consequences for the composition of the Senate and who has the Senate under a Joe Biden presidency. So... Could you just spell out what that means like what either what a democratic controlled senate would mean for Biden's agenda and what the alternative a republican controlled senate would mean?
1: Sure. So so a, a democratic controlled senate is is pretty critical basically to Joe Biden's agenda. Without the senate he can't get through any really any of his major legislative program um, without senate approval. So that means things like um, climate reform big ticket climate reform um, you know he's talked about tackling systemic racism it's also things like economic stimulus um, to, in order to kind of drag the United States out of yet another recession so there's there will be things like that um, if if they do manage to control the Senate even even with a 50/50 split you know we've talked already about the kind of factional warfare of the Democratic Party that's already coming out. So holding that coalition of people together in the Senate in order to get legislation passed is going to be a task in and of itself. I think Biden is pretty well placed to do that, given his experience in the Senate. Without it, Without the Senate, he's going to be facing Mitch McConnell again, who we know is very, very effective at wielding the power he has. And no, he's not going to work with Joe Biden, like despite all of the headlines I've seen. McConnell has shown us who he is time and time again, and we need to believe him. We need to listen to him. So that's going to mean that Biden will probably be forced to govern mostly through executive order, much like President Obama had to do, especially in the kind of second half of his administration. That means things like, you know, he can sign on, sign back onto the Paris Agreement, for example, through executive order, but what that means is those reforms aren't lasting and they aren't systemic because an incoming president, you know, be they Republican or Democrat, can basically just undo them with their own executive orders. And so what we kind of potentially will see is, again, another stalemate where those systemic problems that we've talked about in the institutions of American democracy and beyond them – just doesn't get addressed
0: so with so much in doubt it is definitely too early to ask this question but i'm going to do it anyway um in the spirit of hot takes or hopefully better informed hot takes than most of you are getting emma did trump lose the election or did biden win it
1: so I'm, I'm going to do the historian thing again, Chloe, because I just, I honestly just don't think we can answer that yet. Like I've seen so many people say, you know, this is definitively why this happened, like Biden won because he kind of attracted votes in the center, you know, Arizona flipped for this reason, blah, blah, blah. And I just, I honestly think that the speed at which people are making these proclamations just kind of suggests to me that they're, they're jamming events into their own preconceived ideas about you know, American politics or the state of American democracy or whatever. Yeah. Which, which And it
0: reminds me so much of what happened in 2016. And clearly we haven't learned lessons of that when, you know, every everyone was talking about the white working class and econo- economic disenfranchisement. And that's why Trump was able to win. And then, you know, in the the weeks after that, or, you know, even at the time that they weren't really listened to, there, people started looking at it more closely and they were like, Well, actually, it's more complicated than that. And actually, what you haven't mentioned here is racism. And, you know, we're going to need, like, it goes back to what I said last week, we need different methods, we need time, and we need discrimination to understand what really happened. And we also need to be comfortable with the fact that there are going to be multiple stories about this election, all of which, or many of which um, can be true.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and on the face of it, they can even kind of appear to contradict each other. That's that's kind of the nature of the United States of America. And it and it always kind of sticks out to me where you know when Biden is talking about there's no red states, there's no blue states, we are the United States of America. I think, you know, what we can take away from this as much as we don't want to make conclusions is that the United States is actually multiple very different places and, and those places are re- responding very differently to Trump and, and other issues. And I guess kind of one of the things that concerns me about our reluctance to kind of embrace that complexity is that... You can kind of see it already degenerating into, into internal fights. You know, we, we kind of spoke about this earlier, um, internal fights amongst the left and, and the Democrats more broadly about whether they, even whether, not, not even why, but whether they didn't do as well as they hoped you know, because they lost seats in the House and, and didn't manage to flip the Senate, or at least we, we think they haven't flipped the Senate and you know, and that fight kind of still broadly falls along in those two camps. That either it's because progressives push too hard, you know, the Green New Deal, etc., is too radical. That's why people didn't vote for for Biden by the margins that that the national polling was suggests. Um, which I think is interesting because that's already being kind of imported is the wrong word, but we're already seeing that play out yet again in Australian politics with Joel Fitzgibbon, who's the kind of Coal supporting Labor until recently Labor frontbencher now Labor backbencher, saying that you know we can't use Biden's victory to to push for harder climate policy because that will alienate our, our core base of voters who care about jobs jobs jobs. jobs.
0: Yeah, and I think you know it, there's there's all there's so much convenience in this sort of rash of hot takes on the election and. That's not to say that, you know, I mean, we come to our analysis of American elections with a clear set of priorities and worldviews in mind, and you know, and a clear, I guess, a clear sense of what we would like from American democracy. Um, but it seems it seems so bloody obvious what people are doing, that they're transacting their takes through or they're, they're filtering them through, I guess, their perception of Australian politics or their worldviews. And, yeah, it's It's too soon. It's too
1: too bloody soon. Yeah, it's totally too soon, and it's also a a massive and I think often purposeful distraction from the stuff that actually matters. Yeah,
0: I I agree. I mean, you know, turning the election into a matter of where you sit on the political spectrum and your preferences, it is kind of deflecting from what I think is one of the emerging stories and the real issues that's coming out of that. You know. One thing that's really been, I think, driven home to me by watching hours and hours of a U.S. election broadcast is, you know, that the the American electorate is there's such heterogeneity in it in it, like it is so diverse, and I don't know that you can get a good picture of that. And you know, this is this is my drum that I'm going to beat for the next four years. You can't get that much information about it if you're aggregating everything to this picture of the united states of america we actually have this great need for local information and we need to understand different demographic and racial and ethnic groups in america better and you know i mean i think you were talking before about this fight over who's going to control the democratic the democratic campaign in georgia my and this is more this is a point of principle it's also a point of analysis in terms of my background academically and what I understand about how democracy works in ideal circumstances, is we need to reroute that democracy in as much as possible through local organisations and local institutions. I actually think, you know, from everything you've said and everything I've read, that the worst thing that could happen now is for the centralised agents of the Democratic Party to take control of campaigning in Georgia. Leave it to Stacey Abrams. She knows what she's doing. She knows her community. Which... You know i think brings me to another point which i'm worried is going to be lost in triumphalism about biden winning the election which is that for all that he phrased it badly and for all that he is you know an absolute abomination to the presidency trump had a point about the swamp or at least when he was talking about the swamp in DC, he was tapping into real and justified resentments of the political class in the USA, and I think we ignore that at our peril.
1: Yeah, and look, I, I do think that is one of the many um, different things about the American political system compared to the Australian political system, which is which is not to say that we don't have our own swamp, because I think that we do. But I do think that our system, with you know, with things like independent electoral commissions. Um, has it just has more checks on that kind of power
0: mm-hmm. yeah I, I completely agree and i think that you know a lot of people when they a lot of australians when they look at u.s elections and how how fragmented and how deeply politicized the, the the very running of elections is that it makes everyone very grateful for the australian electoral commission but to me there's there's another side of that there's another side to that chaos which is that one of the things you know I've known sort of academically about American democracy, but this election has really brought home to me, and it's still bringing home through you know all this, this ongoing debacle, these questions around you know Trump's Trump still making appointments, um, Trump whether Trump will leave office quietly, the Georgia runoffs, is that the American system, on a whole, is so much more political, and there is so much more democracy happening all the time in america and i think that that's something that while it is stymied and it's often ineffective especially from a progressive perspective it also means that it's a site of enormous contestation i mean like look at someone like kamala harris so so many so many public positions are elected in america compared with in australia so look look at harris who's and her rise through local and state elected positions eventually to the senate and now to the vice presidency so the good thing, and I know that I mean, this is kind of surprising even to me that I'm saying this because God knows I do say a lot of not nice things about how American democracy works. The good thing about this is that there are so many spaces for contestation, and that's something that's often taken advantage of, and there's a lot of capacity for power to be accrued to unaccountable entities, entities because of that lack of oversight that you've described. But that's also an opportunity
1: yeah, I think there's there's huge opportunity, and and that's kind of what moments of crisis like this will will often throw up is is those are those moments of of opportunity. I guess um you know to get back on brand and <laughs> to start to to be doomsaying again. I think you know part of what what is concerning about the the potential nature of a Biden presidency, especially if it's kind of hamstrung by the the Senate, is the promise of that democratic restoration focuses very much on the national level on the on the United States of America and you know as Biden said in his acceptance speech the United States of America looking outwards and being a beacon to the rest of the world rather than focusing on exactly what you were saying Chloe you know places like Georgia where there is that real potential for democratic renewal and empowerment of people some of the people who have been the least empowered in in the history of American democracy.
0: Yeah, and, you know, it's it's one of the real troubles of, you know, watching this from Australia and admittedly, you know, not watching Fox News 24 hours a day is that we don't get immersed in American democracy and American society. And, you know, so for the last few months, we have been absolute, and, you know, indeed throughout the whole Trump presidency, from this vantage point, we've been focusing relentlessly on the presidency, on the presidential election and the outcome there. But the most, the future and... You know, future developments are the most interesting and probably the most important developments are going to happen locally. You know, these are things that are going to happen from the changing composition of the Miami-Dade electorate to Georgia. Those developments are happening locally. And that's what I think we're going to have to tune into as we go forward through the next few months.
1: Thank you for listening to what turns out to be the final episode of Barely Gettin' By American Carnage. Our thanks go, of course, to RMIT University, which supported and produced this podcast, and to Stuart Cullen for his beautiful original music. We will be back soon with some updates on American politics, but until then, take care.